Please turn back in God's word to Acts chapter 3 and the last two-thirds of that chapter. Acts chapter 3 from verse 11 to verse 26. Let's seek the face of our God. Father, as we seek to proclaim the name of Jesus again this evening, will you by your spirit help us? Will you grant, O Lord, that in considering him and what is spoken of him, that our hearts might burn within us? Lord, bless us, not for our sakes first, but for your own, that in our good you might magnify your glory. Hear us. Heavenly Father, as we come by your Spirit's help and in your beloved Son's name. Amen. Amen. It's going back a few weeks, but do you recall the features of apostolic preaching that we considered from Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2? We said it was gripping and immediate, grounded in the events that were taking place right in front of people. That it was scriptural and reasonable, taking the revelation of God and bringing it manifestly to bear. That it was doctrinal and instructive, being laden with truth from God for men. That it was Christian and adoring. The eye fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the spirit of the witness, exultant in the Jesus whom he declared. That it was applied and direct. No beating about the bush, but cutting straight at the souls of men and women. That it was affectionate and gracious, both manifesting God's gracious heart towards sinners and spoken from a soul moved with Christ-like compassion and then that it was blessed and fruitful, that God was pleased to make it the means of bringing sinners into his kingdom. Everything that was in Acts 2 is present again in Acts 3. As Peter preaches in Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico, uh, just as part of the, the temple complex there in Jerusalem. What in some ways sets it apart is that there is more of Christ in this sermon. There are fresh glimpses. There's a developing understanding. There are other scriptures that are brought to bear. There are particular emphases that are made. In this sermon, as in Acts 2, Peter and the others with him speak as witnesses. Now, they're not witnesses as we might expect in perhaps a court of law, uh, simply neutrally stating this happened, this happened, this happened, we happened to see it happen. Rather, they are persuasive. They're witnesses. They're, they're testifiers. They want you to believe what they believe. They want you to see through their eyes, as it were, and to come to the same conclusions and to arrive at the same convictions. So, knowing and believing, they persuade men. And you can go back to, to Luke's stated intent. Remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, he refers to the former account that he made, 
to Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And you remember why he wrote that, that in Luke chapter 1, he has set in order a narrative of the things fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, again, ministers of the word, delivering them to us. And so it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke's our witness to the witnesses. Luke is communicating to us this apostolic testimony so that we can be persuaded, that we can know what they know, believe what they believe, and rejoice together with them. Now, this sermon is quite distinctly Jewish in its context, which is part of it being gripping and immediate, because it is preached in Jerusalem primarily to a Jewish congregation. There is still, as we shall see, breadth in its declaration and application. But we will trace through what Peter is doing here in this sermon We'll do so by looking first of all at the distinct occasion on which it is preached, then the humble deflection that Peter makes as he begins his sermon, then this powerful, this potent explanation of what is actually taking place in Jerusalem at this time, and then finally a very gracious application at its conclusion. So what is the distinct occasion? This sermon doesn't come out of nowhere. It arises out of what we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. There is no break, as there is for us, between that and this. On that occasion, there was a desperate man, lame from birth. There was that unexpected blessing, silver and gold we do not have, but that which we do have we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. There was the marvellous change as the man who had never walked before received strength by the power of God and, of course, didn't just stand up and walk but began to leap and to run in the temple praising God for this great mercy. And there was this stunned audience as they realised that this man, and, and Peter emphasises it, emphasizes it, doesn't he, that you know who we're talking about. His name made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, this is that guy who has spent his life lying at this gate of the temple. And so it's quite natural that the crowd would now run together amazed as the healed man hangs on to Peter and John. And there's something beautiful there, isn't it? Something human. Peter and John have been the mouthpieces. They have been Messiah's means of bringing blessing to this man. Look at us. We haven't got any money to give you, but we can give you something far greater. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, trusting in him, you may be healed of your affliction. You're not surprised, are you, then, that this man is hanging on to Peter and John? He stopped dancing. It's not that he's got tired. He's got strength he's never had before. But he's clinging to them. These are the men who have done him good. These are the people who brought this blessing to him. 
And all eyes then are fixed upon Peter and John with the healed man hanging onto them. It's normal. It's natural. He's looking at them. And everybody else is looking at this trio of men. Peter and John and the healed man. And that's the distinct occasion then on which this sermon is preached. Now notice the humble deflection. The humble deflection. Peter does something here that is again a little similar to what he does at the beginning of the sermon in Acts 2. What was it on that occasion that brought the people together? Well, they thought everybody was drunk because they heard them speaking in their own languages. And Peter, very wisely, very thoughtfully, he acknowledges their interest and shifts their focus. Acts 2.15 These are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Yes, you're looking at this, but I want to shift your gaze to something else. He does something similar here. Verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter knows what they're looking at and he understands why they're looking there. But he immediately says to them, this is not about men and it's not about a miracle. It's about Messiah. It's not about this man who's been healed. And it's not about us even though he's hanging on to us. Why are you marvelling at this? You should make the connections. Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter's explaining, we haven't done this by ourselves. This isn't our power, nor is it our piety. Perhaps that ugly, sort of almost superstitious Phariseeism that, that might have said, these men have been so good that God is obliged to answer their prayers. God owes them something. Peter says, no, it's not about our power. It's not about our piety. We haven't accomplished this by our own strength and neither does God owe us anything as if they cannot help but answer our prayers. Again, it is delightful here to see a preacher full of the Holy Spirit. Peter's been marked in the past, hasn't he, by confusion and by cowardice, but no longer. There was a time when uh, the Christ said he had to lay down his life, and Peter said, oh, far be that from you, O Lord. There was a point at which the Christ was going to the cross, and Peter, having followed him so far, at that vital moment when he might have stood up to be counted had backed away and said I do not know him but this is the difference that the Holy Spirit can make to feeble sinners like us this man now speaks with courage and he speaks with clarity as the mouthpiece the testimony the witness to Jesus Christ and he points quickly away from himself says it's not about the men and it's not about the miracle why are you goggling at this? I want you to turn your attention to something else. Friends, that's such a helpful reminder in a world where so many religious people use religion as a means of drawing attention to themselves. 
You can go to half a hundred. I'm not saying you should, but if you were to go to some of these miracle shows, these health, wealth and prosperity extravaganzas, these religious jamborees, where are all the spotlights? They're on the man with the microphone. They're drawing attention to the human being. Even if he claims to be a channel for divine power, it is not God who gets the glory, it's the man who seeks the applause and the money that come with it. You notice, though, what Peter does as soon as the spotlight is put upon them. He steps out of it and says, no, not to us, not unto us be glory, but unto the name of our God. He points away. And then he brings this potent explanation. He begins now, having deflected attention from the men and the miracle to Messiah, to make this explicit. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. That's sweet intensity. That's a man who is wounding to heal. All those features of apostolic ministry are present and correct and throbbing with life. Perhaps the key thread that runs through this particular sermon is again the contrast between God's estimation of Jesus of Nazareth and man's estimation of Jesus of Nazareth. What God knows and has declared and what men believed and how they acted. The three things that I think we can helpfully trace through this sermon this evening. The first is the identification of Christ. 
And that's where I say that although this has the same basic features as Acts chapter 2, the, the Pentecost sermon, you've got more illumination, you've got added understanding, you've got additional insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I, I wonder if this might even be the fruit of Peter's consideration of the Old Testament in the period between Pentecost and now. The Holy Spirit is at work in these men, but he's at work in part by means of the revelation that God has already given. These men are now reading their scriptures, their Old Testaments, the way Christ has taught them to. And this feels like the fruit of that kind of spiritual illumination and spirit-illumined study. So, what does Peter say about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, he is the glorified servant of the covenant-keeping God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Notice how Peter picks up exactly the same phrasing at the end of his sermon. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is the servant of the Lord. The God of the covenant, the God of the patriarchs. He is the God who gave this man as his servant. He is the holy one and the just. He is the one who is as God in his perfections, in his moral excellence, in his purity. You have killed the prince of life. The author of life, the, the juxtaposition, the clash of that language. You killed him from whom all life proceeds. He is the prince of life. He is the resurrected one. God has raised him up. Uh, God has uh, raised him from the dead. And again, that lovely echo in verse 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Now, I'm not suggesting that when Moses said that, he was immediately predicting the resurrection. But it may be that Peter's picking up that language and saying, God raised up this Jesus from the dead, just as he promised to Moses that he would raise up a prophet. And it emphasizes and brings additional force to this language. He is the healer. How do you think this man walks? You know his sickness. You know who he is. You know how long he's been here. Where do you think the power for this man's healing has come from? No, it's not our power. It's not our piety. It's not because we're better men than anybody else. Not because we've got some unusual hotline to heaven. This is the work of Jesus of Nazareth. And he is both the object and the giver of saving faith. His name is through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness. So if you were to speak to this man who's been healed and say, who have you believed in order that you may be healed? I have believed in Jesus of Nazareth. Who gave you that faith by which you believe in Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth did. He has worked this in me. He's worked in me the very faith by which I have laid hold upon him in order that I may receive healing from him. Not only do I trust him, but I trust him because he has given me this faith. This is his 
mighty work. Even the very source of the healing is Jesus himself. And in me, if you peel back the layers, where does it all begin? It begins with what Jesus of Nazareth has done in me. Who then is this Jesus? He is the Christ of the prophets. He is the one of whom all the prophets spoke, from Moses and then Samuel and onwards. He is the one who is now ruling in heaven. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended on high. And that is where he will remain until God sends him again for the restoration of all things. And when he comes, then that restoration will take place. Christ is going to blot out all transgression. Christ is going to vindicate his people. The one who now reigns by implication must come to judge. Who is he? He is the prophet like Moses. He is the only man in the history of Israel who could be considered to parallel and then because we know his nature to exceed Moses who was the friend of God. This man speaks in a way that puts even Moses in the shade. Who is he? He is the seed of Abraham, not just another Jewish descendant of the father of the nation. The seed, singular, the same kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses when he's speaking of that one in whom, descending from Abraham, God would accomplish his so great salvation. That promise made to Abraham has come to its conclusion and has reached its pinnacle in none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the man in whom all the families of the earth God intends to bless. What a sermon. What a saviour. You see again, this rich sense that these apostles have of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see again this scriptural and reasonable argumentation. Exodus chapter 3, Isaiah 52 and 53, Genesis 22 and 26, Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 23 might not make a great deal of sense to us, but you can go back, brothers and sisters, and it would be no bad thing if you did, and you saw how Peter is anchoring these statements in what God has already said this is not novel this is not a surprise this should be no shock to you O Jews for in this Jesus God has been fulfilling all that he promised from the first words that were ever spoken from heaven through the men whom God had given here then are men who have learned to read their Bibles the way Jesus taught them to do you remember in Luke 24 how he showed them all the things that were written in him. Moses and the prophets. Everything that had been written. That's how Peter's reading his Old Testament. And brothers and sisters, that's how we should read our Old Testaments. Let alone our New Testaments. There Christ lies on the surface. At times he's clearer in the Old Testament. But from Samuel onwards, they have spoken of him in accordance with what God had begun to make known as recorded in the books that Moses wrote. You and I should read our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, looking for 
expecting to find and most marvellously seeing Christ revealed in them. That might mean you need to look quite, difficult, quite hard. When did Samuel speak of Jesus? It's worth pondering, isn't it? Because Peter thought that he did. When did Samuel talk about Jesus? Where are the messianic prophecies in Samuel? It may be as simple as the fact that God sent that man to anoint David, the son of Jesse. And said, don't look the way men look. He saw these great warrior types stand before him. He thought, surely this must be the man of God's anointing. No, said the Lord, not him, not him, not him, not him. So that by the end of it, Samuel says to Jesse, you've got another son? Because it's not one of these fellows. Yes, there's a man out in the fields, a shepherd looking after the flock. And he comes in and Samuel sees through God's eyes a man whom his brothers despise, but God's favoured one. Peter identifies Christ. And that puts the second element, the rejection of Christ, into a very gloomy light. It is this Jesus prophesied and fulfilling prophecy that the Jews rejected. And Peter pulls no punches. God glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You had a way out. Pilate opened the door wide enough for Jesus to walk away. And you said, no, shut it. We want this man to die. You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You chose Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth. You killed him, who is the Prince of Life. Do you feel that contrast fiercely now? You see what Peter's saying to them? God's estimation, the servant, the prince of life, the seed of Abraham, the prophet like Moses, the holy one, the just. And you twice emphasised, you denied him. You called for his death. You delivered him up. You asked for a murderer. You put him to death. You bade for the blood of the one whom God delighted in. I know that you did it in ignorance, says Peter. I don't think he's making excuses for them. You had the law and the prophets. And though these things were being fulfilled in your very eyes, though these were the very means by which God was accomplishing his purposes, you looked straight through it. You looked straight past it. It may even be, some commentators suggest, that far from saying these men are not to blame, that this brings greater guilt. You didn't know. How did you not know? 
How could you not see? Paul said, if they'd known, if they'd understood, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they were blind to the glory of the Lord. And says Peter, every soul that does not hear this Moses-like prophet shall be utterly cut off, destroyed from among the people. Now, if you're a Jew listening to this sermon, perhaps no more fearful judgment could be declared against you. That if I turn my back on the prophet like Moses, that I forfeit my place among the people of God and the Lord himself cuts me off casts me out and this Jesus for whose blood I bade this Jesus whom I denied this Jesus of whom I chose a murderer before him this Jesus whom I killed this is the prince of life this is the prophet this is the seed of Abraham and I have rejected him. Here's where the grace. Here's where the grace comes in. Do you remember what Jesus told these men? Peter, John and the others. I want you to go and preach the good news. Of my death and resurrection to the whole world. I want you to begin in Jerusalem. You couldn't get closer to being in Jerusalem than standing in Solomon's porch in the temple telling these men about Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps there's a fulfilment here of the Lord coming to his temple in one sense. He's now in his men, in the living body. And perhaps the contrast is there too. All this stuff in the background? No. God is here in his people speaking through these men. Offering mercy to those who killed the prince of life. What does Peter say right at the heart of his sermon? Verse 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Is it not wonderful that the servants of the prophet come to those who in their ignorance and blindness have turned their backs upon him? And say, can you see him now? Do you understand now? Repent and be converted. Obtain from him the same faith which he's given to this man. Exercise toward him the same faith which this man has exercised. Repent and be converted. Stop rejecting him. Put away the moral madness 
Put away the spiritual blindness. Stop believing the lies that you have been believing about Jesus of Nazareth. Confess that you have had it all wrong, most abominably, most damnably wrong. And turn to him whom you denied, derided, abandoned, delivered up. You understand what conversion is? We talk about sometimes we, we, we dilute it down and it's not entirely wrong. Turn. That's what this looks like. Stop believing all the lies you've been believing and start believing the truth you've been denying. That's the radical nature of these things. That's the absolute shift that takes place at the very core of our being. It could be as radical in someone who says, I have never not believed in God. I have always accepted that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God incarnate. Yes, but do you now trust him? Do you now turn to him and cast yourself upon him? There must be this shift in the soul. It's a call. It's a command. And it comes with the strongest and sweetest of motivations. Why should any sinner turn from their sins and believe in Jesus of Nazareth? Because when you do, your sins will be blotted out. It's the language of utter obliteration. Some suggest that at these times, the, the ink that was used to write on the papyrus had no acid in it. Uh, modern inks, the ones that you might use if you've got a, a nice fountain pen, they, they actually bite into paper. And that's one of the reasons why they're so hard to remove. But you could take an old piece of papyrus with this older kind of ink and you could more or less scrub the ink straight off the page. That's blotting out. That's obliteration. Peter says, if you will repent and be converted... If you will turn to this Jesus, then every transgression you have committed up to and including his murder will be taken off your record. All the hatred, all the bile, all the anger, all the rejection, all the believing in the lies, all the unbelief of the truth. If you will now turn to him, there will not be any blot or stain left on your record before the judge of all the earth. No trace of any iniquity that you have ever committed. My friends, think what that would mean for you. Think what it does mean for us if we are God's people. Every commandment broken, in thought as well as in deed, every foul desire, every flawed idea, Every failed act of worship, every time when anyone or anything has come into our view over and above God, every mistake, every oh, what a pathetic word for sin, these are not mistakes simply, these are transgressions, these are iniquities, the words that have proceeded from my heart, the things that I have seen and heard, what my hands have done, where my feet have taken me, if I repent and am converted, not a single thing remains on my record in the eyes of an all-seeing God through this Jesus of Nazareth. That's our salvation. 
Your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. God will shower mercies upon you, the likes of which you have never comprehended. Not only will God take away the record of your iniquities, not only will the blood of the Lamb blot out all your transgressions, but in the place of the judgments that those sins have deserved, the sins themselves being taken out of God's reckoning, you will be the recipient of favours from heaven which you could not begin to calculate, to restore, to refresh, to delight your soul. And then, finally, he will send Christ. He will restore all things, and by implication, you will have a part in that restoration. It's not a fully developed statement of our participation in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, but that's the, the thrust of it. That's the direction of it. Christ is coming back. Christ is going to accomplish all that God has intended. Heaven has now received him until the times of restoration of all things. My friend says, Peter, that which has been promised in the prophets. You can turn perhaps to the end of Isaiah. You could look at some of what Ezekiel has to say. That glorious, light-filled, majestic wonder of a restored heavens and earth Christ will accomplish this God will send him to you and for you if you will repent and be converted how do you know Peter says you know this man you've seen him lying crippled at the temple day after day after day begging so that he can keep body and soul together because he's been broken never able to walk and the same Jesus who has healed him can heal you this is a little glimpse into the gracious glorious work of the risen Christ. If the risen Jesus can make well this man who trusted in his name, what can he do for you if you will trust in his name? His name. This revelation of his being, that's what the identification of Jesus is. This is his name. This is his person. This is who he is. His name. Through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And Peter says to these blind, Christ-rejecting men and women, do you too want perfect soundness? Do you want your soul to be made whole? then you must come by the same path as this man. That you must trust in the name of Jesus and he who now reigns on high will make you as well in your soul as he has made this man in his body. That curse that comes upon the prophet rejectors, that curse shall be utterly removed. And blessing abundantly 
bestowed. And Peter closes with this gracious application. You are the sons of the prophets. You're the inheritors of these promises. You are sons of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed to you first. You understand what's happening here, he says. Brothers, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter's looking them in the eye, isn't he? Here's that gripping, immediate, direct and applied ministry. He says to them, you are Jews and to you belong the wonderful privileges of knowing the oracles of God. You're the sons of the prophet, you're the sons of the covenant. You know what God said. You are the ones to whom first the seed of Abraham has been made known that in him you might find everlasting life. Peter's not saying, it's okay, you're Jews. You belong to the right family, you've got the right blood flowing in your veins, it's an automatic pass into the kingdom of heaven. No, he's saying to you first, before this good news is proclaimed to all the families of the earth, to you first, Christ is held out, so that whoever among you repents, and is converted, shall have your sins blotted out, times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord, and the expectation and anticipation of the return of Christ in his glory for his people. Christ was sent to bless you, says Peter, to sinners. Isn't that the gospel boiled down in some measure to look sinners like us in the face? Say, Christ has come to do you good. Christ has come to bless you. Christ has come to save you from your sins. This Jesus. Take him, trust him, and the Saviour and his salvation are yours. His name is life and health and peace. Is this how we preach Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I'm not a preacher. No, in some sense you are, brother, sister. In our business, individually as saints and as a church, is this how we proclaim Christ? Do we declare his name? Having studied his person and work in the scriptures, do we make him known? Those of you who are teaching in the Sunday schools at the moment, are you proclaiming Jesus Christ as Saviour? Those of you who knock on doors or talk on the streets and in the field, are you telling people about your Jesus as persuasive witnesses? Those of us who have the privilege of standing to speak or teach in this or some other church building, those of us who sit down with our families in family worship, those of us who talk to our friends or, or sit down with someone for a coffee, engage a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness at the door, wherever it may be, who are you telling them about? <coughs> his name. Through faith in his name. Salvation comes. Is this how we preach 
Christ? And is this how we take Christ? You see, when this Jesus is declared, you need to repent and be converted if you have not yet done so. We're not just painting a picture so that a man, a woman, a child can say, well, that's nice, and move on. We're witnesses, in some sense apostolic, not eyewitnesses, but witnesses to the eyewitnesses. We're telling you what they saw. We're holding Christ before you. And you need as much to take Jesus as your saviour as any of these Jews did. To repent of your sins. To repent of every wrong, every low thought of Jesus of Nazareth. To trust in his name to deliver you from the curse of God. The business of the church is to declare the life that is in the prince of life. And the great concern of sinners like me and like you is to receive the life that is in him. Perfect soundness through faith in Jesus of Nazareth.